This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I have a very special guest on the podcast. His name is Michael Easter. So Michael is a professor in the journalism department at UNLV, and he also co-founded and co-directs the Public Communications Institute, which is a think tank at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. And he's also the author of the best-selling book, The Comfort Crisis, Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self. So this book was absolutely fantastic. I just read it here recently, even though it's been out for a little bit. But in this book, the things he was learning about comfort and why he's comfortable, why he's drawn to comfort and a life of comfort and why all of us as Americans and really all of us in modernity are drawn towards comfort and how that's really not a good thing for us. And this all kind of led him to do a 33-day caribou hunt in the Alaskan backcountry. And in the book, he goes into all the detail. And in this interview, we go into a ton of detail on that. But the interesting thing about this book is it's very similar to another book, which I absolutely love, which is called Professor in the Cage. And so that's a book where, you know, this, you know, college professor decides he wants to try MMA and then he eventually wants to do a fight. And that by itself would have been just good enough, right? You know, a cool story. But he goes into all these other different areas of research, uh, at, you know, in terms of how, why we like fighting and why we fight ourselves and all those interesting things and all the, the health stuff that goes into that. Michael did the same thing with this book, because if it was just, you know, a hunting memoir or, you know, this great hunting story, that's cool enough. A lot of us would listen to that. We would read that, those types of things. But he gets into a lot of, you know, ideas about nutrition. He talks about this Japanese concept of a misogi, which is kind of this extreme thing that you do to help bust yourself out of this comfort. Some of the issues we're, we're having, you know, physiologically and socially with uh, our inability to feel discomfort and modernity. So we get into all of that here in this interview. And also that book even caught the attention of a guy named Joe Rogan. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. He's kind of been in the news here recently, but Michael appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience episode 1649 back in May of 2021. I'll put that in the show notes, but it's just a really awesome concept that this guy was able to uncover that a lot of people haven't really thought of. And it's really led to some really cool things that he could do. He's spoken uh, to or consulted for various top tier universities and medical schools, Fortune 500 companies, government agencies, and you know some of the country's largest nonprofits. But his work has also appeared in a ton of magazines, so Men's Health, and you know he's actually a contributing editor there. Outside Magazine, Men's Journal, Cosmo, Vice, Esquire, Scientific American, even Women's Health. Even though this is a man's podcast, but this guy's work has appeared everywhere because I think he's uncovered something that a lot of people didn't want to deal with, which is hey. This modern, you know, pull towards being comfortable is not the greatest thing for us. So guys, awesome interview. I really, really enjoyed it. I think you will as well. But without further ado, let's get into it. Michael Easter, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, I've, I've been anxious for this interview because I just got through reading your book not that long ago and it had been on my list for a while. So I'm glad I finally took it down. But before we really dig into the book, you wrote an entire book about the benefits of kind of spurning comfort uh, and instead embracing discomfort, right? So I, I guess that's the best, most basic way to describe it and much, much more on that here in a bit. But by means of introduction, give us an idea of what you and your life was like prior to your journey of fighting against comfort. And, and there was a quote from your book that I felt like maybe encapsulates what your life might be like. And it was this, most of my mental energy was spent toggling back and forth between being drunk and obsessing over the next drink. So give us a sense of who Michael was before, you know, we get into the journey that you talk about in the book. Yeah, totally. So 
I, um, I'm a health journalist by trade and I was, uh, at the time, uh, working for men's health magazine, which obviously everyone's heard of, but sort of my, my bigger backstory is that I come from this long line of men that are just hell on wheels when they drink. So like the, the Easter name is well known in the Idaho jail and prison system, <laughs> you know, like there's just way too many crazy family stories. One of, one of the best ones I was at, uh, my cousin, gets uh thrown into the drunk tank and he wakes up and he's there with my uncle and this was unplanned this is like an <laughs> impromptu family reunion right. like they're both in there together like oh hey um so i was sort of uh walking that same line basically i i like to drink and when i started to drink i drank more it's like i always like to say my f- most favorite drink was the next one yeah you know and um that worked for a while. I think what drinking did for me is that it just made me comfortable no matter what was going on. It relieves stress. It makes you more comfortable around people. It's just like, kind of like a, just like a pressure release valve, yeah. you know? And, um, <clears throat> but once you keep doing that, especially when you drink the way I do, your life starts to just like fall apart, you know? And um, <clears throat> I tried to quit drinking tons and tons of times. But one day for whatever reason, uh, things eventually just got bad enough. And I kind of had this moment where I could see that if I kept doing this comfortable thing, even though it was ruining my life, it was going to be the path I knew it was more comfortable. I could keep drinking, but it was eventually going to kill me. Now, as I write in the book, I didn't know that if I was going to die at like 35, 55, 75, I had no idea. I just knew that it was going to end me early. Right. Uh, or I could take this more uncomfortable path, which I realized, you know, try and get sober. I had no clue what that would entail. I had mm-hmm. no clue if I could even do it. I knew it was going to be terrible <laughs> in every right. single way. Um, but that's the path I took. And by, by getting sober and going through that crazy discomfort, not just like physically as your body starts to like get rid of stuff, but also psychologically. Cause like, that's the main thing. It's like, you've had this thing that has worked and sort of your life has revolved around forever. And then you just remove that. So now you got to relearn life and how to live it. Right. That's pretty uncomfortable. Um, but by going through that, my life got better, like in every single way. Yeah. And I think that's the the thing that people don't really understand is when they go through something hard and in, I was even just listening to a podcast today that was talking about people that are trying to come off opioids or people trying to come off alcohol. It's not just this cold Turkey thing, depending upon how much you're, you're abusing those substances, but really all that ties nicely into the book, which is called the comfort crisis, embrace discomfort to reclaim your wild, happy, healthy self. And so, you know, we're very, very comfortable in modernity. Right. And, and we've worked really, really hard so that we can be this fat and this comfortable and more about fatties here in just a minute. Sorry if I've offended anybody right from the beginning. I'm doing that so people don't get mad at you for anything you say. So I'm doing you a solid here. But I, I guess for us as humans, and you can flow on this in whatever direction you want, we're very, very comfortable. We like the idea of being comfortable, uh, but it's a problem for us that we seek comfort. So why is it such a problem for humans to seek comfort? It seems like it should be the, a positive thing, right? Yeah. And I don't even, I don't know if it's a, a problem. It's, I think it's what's happened is that it's a problem today. So you need to start, okay, well, why do we always want to be comfortable? Why do we want to do the next easiest thing? And this is because as humans evolved, we lived in these uncomfortable, harsh, rough landscapes, right? There was like never enough food. It was always too hot or too cold. We had to find shelter. We were up against like wild animals. Mm -hmm. So doing the next most comfortable thing gave us a survival advantage, right? It told us to overeat when we had the opportunity. It told us to avoid risk at all costs, avoid failure at all costs, 
um, hunker down, sit around, be lazy, on and on and on. This made sense for millions of years, right? But today we have, and it's a good thing, (laughs) we've come up with all this technology and innovations that have essentially removed uh, discomfort from our lives. And again, that's great. People are living longer than ever. We have all these great things. But at the same time, we still have this drive to always be comfortable in a really comfortable world. So we're still, we still have this drive to be lazy when we can be lazy and we don't have to work for our food anymore, right? We avoid all risk when risk today isn't like going into the wild to earn your dinner. It's like, ah, should I make this business decision or whatever, right? Um, and so this backfires and you can tie a lot of like the, not only the big physical problems we now have, stuff like obesity, um, the diseases that come from it, but also a lot of psychological problems that we now have because we don't, um, because we don't have any real risk in our life. We're never really shown what we're capable of. And this seems to be related to a lot of the anxieties that you have in modern society today. I mean, anxiety is the highest it's ever been in human history and depression, right? Right. Well, it's, it's incredibly high and most people don't know why. And for, for some people, they would say, oh, well, there's a God shaped hole or we have too much stimuli. There's too many things. There's too many buzzing. But I mean, you brought this up, but in the book, you talk about sarcopenia, I think is how you say it, but it's this condition. That's kind of this modern thing where there's loss of muscle mass and function and humans now in modernity are being known for our fatness and lack of fitness. When I could literally go on my phone right now and get almost any workout program and any diet program for free. And yet people just don't want to do it. Uh, But there's something else. There's another phenomenon here that I thought was really interesting that you brought up in the book. You talk about the work of David Lavari and he made, you made this point in the book. Lavari called this prevalence induced concept change, essentially problem creep. It explains that, uh, that as we experience fewer problems, we don't become more satisfied. We just lower our threshold threshold for what we consider a problem. We end up with the same number of troubles, except our new problems are progressively more hollow. So as soon as I read that section, the first things that came to mind, Michael, were microaggressions, uh, you know, canceling people for things that they said or did before we were even born, people that have been dead for decades or, or centuries, you know, people calling things racist that clearly aren't racist. Like our, our bar for things that are offensive is so incredibly low. That's how I took it. I don't know if that's the point that you were making, but it seems like that's connected, no? Oh, it's totally connected. I mean, I think it extends to a lot of different domains, like exactly what you're talking about. You're totally correct. But it also, it explains first world problems, basically, right? As your problems become, your, your brain is still seeking problems all the time, but our world is continuously getting better and better and better, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think we can all agree that over the last hundred, 200, 300 years, the world is clearly better. Right. The last 20 years. I mean, things have gotten so easy. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, again, like we're less likely to die at any given moment. We have way more food than we need. Most people now have a house, uh, live in climate control. People have access to vehicles. We don't have to walk places. The world is clearly better. But the human brain doesn't really look back at these longer timescales, right? We just kind of look at like whatever problem we, we perceive in the moment. So when you poll people, for example, only 6% of Americans think that the world is improving. 6%. And that's because of this feature that we're talking about in our brain. So what this does is this just gives us a lack of perspective about how good we have it in the grand scheme of time and space, which we do. And if you can understand that, it almost becomes hilarious. Mm -hmm. Just like 
how spoiled we are today. And yet, what do we do, right? We bitch about microaggressions. We bitch about the fact that like there was traffic on our way to like getting coffee or like we had to wait five extra minutes at a restaurant. And it's just, it's just absurd. It's like makes people completely insufferable. And I'm not at all saying that like, I don't have my own moments of insufferability. Like surely I do. But when I can remember this, right, that just like changes the game. Like it totally changes the game. You're just like, oh yeah, this is this is hilarious. Like I'm at a I'm at a restaurant. I'm about to eat like two thousand calories and whatever. It's warm in here. There's water, right? I'm not having to worry about like some wild animal attacking me as I'm trying to get my food. Like it's absurd how amazing things are today, and yet here we are, just all complaining. Well, Michael, the funny thing about it is, you know, you've played 20 questions with somebody. It's like, Hey, what's your favorite color? If you could, you know, live anywhere in the world, where would you live? But when people are like, if you could go back and live at any point in history, what time would you want to go to? And some people are like, I would want to experience ancient Greece or ancient Rome or the roaring twenties. And I'm like, I would want to be yesterday, like yesterday or today. That's where exactly where I would want to be. Cause you know what I don't want to get? surgery in the roaring twenties or dental oh, work totally. or any of those types of things. Like, are you out of your mind? I would want to visit. I'd like to pop into ancient Rome, walk around the Colosseum and then, you know, kind of come back, but you wouldn't want to stay there. And uh, I think that's an interesting point that, that you bring up in the book as well, but go ahead. Well, the, the hilarious thing is that when, when people like, let's say you throw out ancient Rome or the, the Greeks, right? What they're picturing is that they are going to be the like, 0.001% of the population that <laughs> the was the ruler right. and not the 99.99% of the population that had to toil in the fields for like a piece of, of bread or two a day and died at like 25 years old, right. right? So it's just like, there's just complete misconception about what a person's life was like uh, in the past. Right. Well, I don't even know anyone now because it would be ridiculous for someone to not name their child once they were born. There are some people that wait until they see the kid because they're like, I don't want to name the kid Michael. What if he doesn't look like a Michael? You know, that type of a thing. But yep. back in Roman times, the, you know, in the first two or three years of a child's life, they wouldn't even give it a name a lot of times because they were almost certain the kid was likely going to die. And so yeah. it's like you, you don't name something that you, you're going to assume is not going to be with you for very long. So, yeah, I'm right there with you. But I do want to get into right now uh, the concepts or really we'll get into the concept of misogai here in just a second or misogi, whatever it's uh, pronounced as. You'll correct me here in a second. But it seems like your life changed forever in 2017 when you met some crazy dude named Donnie Vincent. Okay. So just briefly introduce our audience to him if they're not aware of who Donnie is. And Donnie is the guy that actually took you on your first real outdoorsy hunting trip, right? Yeah. Okay. So who's Donnie? So Donnie is this, uh, his name's Donnie Vincent. He is a backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker. And to sort of understand him, you need to understand that like he's not making the type of hunting documentaries that you would see on the outdoor channel. Mm -hmm. He's making these documentaries that are more like planet earth, but they also have hunting in them. Right. So it's like, they're just like beautiful and amazing. And I think he's telling a lot different story about hunting. So he will go into the world's most remote dangerous places for like months at a time to hunt a single animal. Right. And um, he's really thinking about hunting in a different way, uh, sort of, you know, thinking deeply about hunting, I guess I would say. And it's almost like, you know, he's like part locavore, part ultra endurance athlete, part naturalist. Like he was a wildlife biologist for a long time. He's got like this long hair. So he's kind of like this like hippie, you know, um, super fascinating dude. So men's health, uh, commissions me to write a story about him. I came across him and so I pitched, pitched it. Um, 
And they said, yeah. And so I go hunting with him in Nevada, uh, up in the mountains in sort of the, the middle of the state. And we were off the grid for not that long. He was up there for maybe like three weeks, but I just joined in for five days because I had a job, you know? Right. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was fascinating because at the time, so this is after I had gotten um, sober or whatever, and I had started to begin thinking about how, okay, if you want anything positive in life, like you got to embrace discomfort and go through that discomfort because that's how you're going to improve. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when we go up in the mountains of Nevada, and again, it's only there for five days, all of a sudden I'm reintroduced to all these forms of discomfort that our ancestors faced every single day that we just don't face anymore, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, I'm hungry the whole time because we could only pack in so much food. I'm bored as hell because yeah. hunting mostly is boring. You're just like sitting glassing for these, for these mm-hmm. elk and don't get me wrong, it's beautiful, but nature becomes a little bit boring after about 20 minutes of looking at it, right? And your cell phone doesn't work and I'm not bringing a computer or a book. So it's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, this is interesting. Uh, if we wanted water, you know, it's a pretty much high desert. I have to hike my ass down thousands and thousands of feet to this one like stream and get it and then hike back, you know? And so there's like all these things that are sort of removed from our lives now. And so it got me thinking about this topic as a whole and then to sort of jump into the, uh, might be getting uh, a little ahead of your questioning here, but to jump into, um, the Alaska trip, what ends up happening is the story comes out. Uh, it's in men's health. It's a big hit, got a ton of traffic, which was kind of unexpected for a story about hunting. I mean, men's health had literally probably never used the word hunting in the magazine and yeah. like, it's, it's 35 year history ever and, um, gets a ton of traffic and Donnie and I stay in touch. We become good friends. And one day he just calls me up and he's like, Hey man, I'm going up to the Arctic for more than a month. You want to come along with me? And, you know, before I can say no, (laughs) hell no, uh, he gets in on this sales pitch, right? He's like, dude, it's going to be the most epic adventure a human could ever be on. (laughs) He's like, we're going to, we're going to time it to this great caribou migration. We'll hunt caribou. We're going to see grizzly bears. We're going to cross ancient mountain ranges. We're going to have to ford through these glacial rivers and, and on and on and on. Like he's selling it. Right. And I'm at home in Las Vegas. I'm like, in my air conditioned house sitting on the freaking soft couch. And I'm just like picturing myself as the main character in this Jack London novel or something. And I'm like, yeah, that's me, you know? Right. (laughs) So I saw, I'm like, yeah, dude, let's do it. Um, and I, I, right afterwards I'm like, okay. So I get my gear. I like, I, I start training, like I'm all in on this thing. And one of the funnier things, which I write about in the book is we eventually, um, meet up to kind of go over stuff before the trip. And he's, he sits me down and he's like, you realize that this is going to be a lot more extreme and dangerous than the Nevada trip. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, of course. Like how much more extreme and dangerous? And he looks at me and he goes 20 times. And I'm like, Oh, 20 times. Yeah. I, okay. I can handle that. I thought you were going to say like 50. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, well, it could be 50. could be 70 you know, it could actually be 90, (laughs) but I was like in at that point, right? Tickets are bought. I've been training. I have all this money invested in this like outdoor shit. That's so extreme. Uh, yeah. And then we went on the trip 
<laughs> yeah, and and we'll just go ahead and dig into the trip, and we'll, we'll get back into some other concepts from the book a little bit later. So you're preparing for this trip. So obviously you're trying to prepare with the gear. You're trying to get yourself in shape. You're trying to get your mind right because he's straight up telling you there's going to be some sketchy flights. There will be grizzly bears. There will likely be wolves. It'll be cold. It'll be exhausting. It'll be all these things. It's like yeah, yeah. Sign on the dotted line. But the the trip essentially consists of you, Donnie, and Donnie's longtime cinematographer, a guy named William Altman. Yeah. But there was something that happened very very early in the trip that I found incredibly interesting. So I want to get your a little bit more feedback on it. So you're uh, the way I understand or remember it, uh, your pilot Brian needed to kind of leave you behind and take Donnie and William and, and the gear to kind of the final destination. And like maybe they couldn't take all of you and all the gear at all at the same time, so they kind of had to leave you be- behind for a little bit. So they left you alone in the middle of the Alaskan backcountry. You're not armed. Like you basically don't have anything and you're the only human being for miles in any direction. So I guess I have a multi-part question. Number one, why didn't those bastards leave you with a gun or or a, or a knife or, or some the stick or something that you could defend yourselves with? But also you talk about this extremely unique feeling of aloneness, not loneliness, but aloneness. So can you take us through that in kind of that early part of the trip? Yeah. So the answer to your first question is, is just that it's because they're bastards. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> now we only had one rifle and, uh, to transport it, it's like they ended up with it. They were going to a new place and the, the place where I was, there's, I mean, there's grizzly shit everywhere, but there's grizzly shit everywhere in the Arctic. So I was mm-hmm. like, all right, I'll just stand in a place that's visible and, you know, hope for the best. Cause you know, like the reality is, is people really, really freak out about grizzly bears up there. And like, when I talk about that, people are like, oh my God. Right. The reality is it's the plane flights and the weather that'll kill people. (laughs) Like the grizzly bear, like that, your odds of getting attacked are pretty low. If you do get attacked, you're going to be really messed up. You're probably going to die because it's going to take way too long for any rescue to come get you. And then you're in a hospital in a 3000 person town in the Arctic. Like, so it's bad, but it's just so rare that really we sort of get an outsized fear of that happening when in reality it's, it's the plane flights. Um, but the second part is, yeah, so I find myself alone. Right. And I think what's interesting is that, um, and I I really kind of, um, make a difference in the book between feelings of loneliness and feelings of solitude. Mm -hmm. So we know that feeling lonely is associated with all kinds of bad health outcomes, mm-hmm. right? It's like uh, higher risk of heart disease, higher risk of cancer. They run all the data and feeling lonely is the equivalent of, I think, smoking like 15 cigarettes a day when they do studies. It takes like six years off your life. But uh, I think that there's a big difference between loneliness and solitude. So loneliness is I want to hang out with people, but I just, I don't know anyone, right? Mm -hmm. Solitude is like, I'm taking time for myself to be alone and using this for good. And if you think about it today, I make the argument that we we are rarely like alone and in solitude because even Mm -hmm. if we're like, hey, I'm gonna go into my room for some alone time, it's like, what do we do? We're usually like on our phone, on Twitter, Right. we're watching TV, we're texting with people, like we're always with other people, even if it's in the form of media. Mm-hmm. So when I'm out in the Arctic, it's like, I don't have any of that, right? I am totally alone, no one around me for miles and miles and miles. And it just got me thinking about this difference. And I think what's interesting is that I kind of had this moment where you go, you know, a lot of how we figure out who we are and shape our personality, it's all based on reactions to other people. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's like, oh, this person's that. So I'm going to differentiate myself with this. It's like, we do a lot of different thing and compare ourselves and contrast ourselves. And when you're completely in solitude, you're just like, oh, that's, that's kind of a bunch of bullshit. I just like made up, you know? So I think my takeaway from that is that we as people just need more time in solitude. And it's also time in solitude is also associated with like increases in creativity, better mental health. And just like this one scientist I talked to, he's like, honestly, just like getting to know yourself better. You're not having to constantly think about others and react to other people. So I make the case that I think we need more of that time just like completely removed from, from everything. Right. Like the forced boredom, I, I guess is another way yeah. that you can try to describe as well. Cause you talk a lot in the book and guys, this is a good time to kind of say, we can't get into half of the stuff from the book. So there's a lot of detail in there that you're gonna have to get it for yourself. It's in the show notes. You can check it out, but you were reading labels, uh, on your, on your jackets and on, you know, you knew everything about, you know, your cliff bars that you guys were eating because you were sitting there reading the labels, but it was that forced boredom and that forced solitude that allowed you to have some introspection. And, and one thing I'm actually curious about, and I'm here, I'm, I'm all over the place. Now I'm going to just be jumping all over in this interview. One thing that I was curious about, because I can't remember if you said in the book, but I'm pretty sure that you didn't. You, you were in these moments of solitude. You were kind of thinking internally, like you were thinking about yourself. You, you know, you're kind of thinking about your place in the world. You were thinking about, you know, things that would take your mind off of how cold and bored you were. One thing I was curious about as you were going through that, did you have any reflection on the world outside of you? And I don't mean just like America or North America or something like that. I mean like the spiritual realm, because there are people that are like so distracted from life in any particular setting. And again, like I told you off air, this is mainly a Christian audience. So I I know guys that don't ever hear from God using air quotes, anybody that, that, you know, makes feel funny until they go out into solitude. And then they feel like they're, they're completely away from all the distractions and that they're almost being communicated to by the, the, this all seeing all, all being, you know, all knowing, all loving God, right. For, for you, yeah. did, it was that something that you experienced out there was like almost this tug or longing. I'm just curious. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, so <clears throat> after you're out in nature, when things are really tuned down, and you're not having as much stimulation, like the world slows down. And this is actually a certifiable scientific phenomenon. It's right. called the three-day effect. Hmm. Basically what happens is when people are in nature for at least three days without their cell phones, without all this outside stimulation, um, your brain starts to ride what are called alpha waves. So normally in everyday life, when our, you know, sort of modern built environment, the, the brain rides what are called beta waves. Now, these are sort of frenetic go, go, go waves. They're associated with, you know, distraction, stress, burnout, all that kind of stuff. Now, alpha waves, the one you hit on the third day, um, those are the same waves that are found in really experienced meditators. Mm -hmm. And they're like these, you know, associated with calm and just like feelings of spirituality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera which is a long way of saying like, totally, you're just like, you're just having these like <laughs> spiritual moments all the time up there right. for sure. And it kind of like, you know, I mean, one of my takeaways too was that like, when you think about people who are like against the idea of there being something bigger or greater than themselves out there, call it whatever you want to, mm. right? You don't find that they spend a lot of time out in nature that often. They tend to live in cities yeah. and I'll tell you yeah. what, you look at the research on cities, cities make people cynical. They make people depressed. They make people anxious in general. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, I would probably think there wasn't anything greater than myself too. If I was in an apartment in Brooklyn, just on Twitter all day, no kidding. It's like, right. 
You're the center of your universe. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I I remember this because you mentioned, I I forget what the the stat was, but there was some study where they looked at the major cities around the world and they, I think they ranked them in terms of like happiness or, or, you know, satisfaction Mm -hmm. with life. And New York City was dead last, which is surprising to no one that's ever lived in New York City. You know, because I I lived in New York City. And one thing that was interesting, Michael, while I lived there, you know, again, as a Christian, you know, I'm a fast paced guy. So the pace didn't really bother me or anything like that. But it, it seemed like an incredibly spiritually depraved place. Like, cause everybody was worshiping at the altar of money and fame and busyness and importance and, you know, whatever their thing is as to why they, you know, transmitted themselves to, to New York or transplanted themselves and went there. But that's the thing that I feel like a lot of those people, they don't have a grounding in anything other than some random ideology. So it could be black lives matter. It could be their favorite conservative talk show host. It could be, you know, uh, money, Wall Street or something like that, but there was no grounding for any of that spirituality. Is that something that you, you feel like you've, you've seen and noticed as well? Yeah, I lived there for a few years too. And I, I mean, I'm definitely, I'm glad I lived there when I yeah. did, but I agree. Um, there's something that's definitely like people psychologically don't do well there. And there's, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think some of the stuff you mentioned for sure. We also know that, um, you know, humans evolved in these groups of like 150 people max. Right. And that's basically the number of people that you can um, remember all their names and faces and also remember like the relationships that they have with each other. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like, you know, don't put Janet and Karen at the same table type of thing. Right. Um And once we move into these really densely populated areas, it goes beyond that. And our brain has a hard time like putting, like just dealing with so many people, right? So you look at population density and New York is the most population dense city in the country. So it's kind of like not surprising that it ranked dead last. Right. Well, and when you have people living on top of you, there's constant pressure. So I train jujitsu. And so like, I'm used to being, you know, claustrophobic and kind of getting smushed and smashing in these uncomfortable positions, but I couldn't live that way. Right. I couldn't live with, you know, some sweaty person, like smashing my face into a direction that I don't want it to go into. That's kind of what it's like living in New York. And so, and remind me where you grew up. Did you grow up on the East coast? No, I grew up in uh, Northern Utah. Okay. In Utah. Okay. So uh, curious uh, about your upbringing as well. And then we'll kind of get back into the book and into the hunting trip. You know, here I am going on another diatribe, but I'm wondering about living, you know, obviously Utah that that's Mormon country and there's a lot of that type of thing, but obviously there are Christians out there as well. Did you grow up in any type of like spiritual environment? Did you have like thoughts on who Jesus was? Was God kind of a part? Cause like I didn't, like I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up like I was born in Oklahoma. So I was a Christian, right? Like that's kind of right. like my upbringing, but what was kind of your upbringing in like specific spiritual things, not just, you know, spiritualism in general. Yeah, that's so most of my family is Mormon. Um, They like came over at the handcarts, settled the state type of thing. Um, Now, my mom is interesting because she was the oldest of four and um, she was raised Mormon. And then in the 60s, she moved to Hawaii and she was kind of like this counterculture I mean, she at one point was getting tailed by the FBI because she was dating this guy who was this leader of this massive Vietnam resistance movement. Um, she, you know, moved back to move to Idaho and did a lot of partying, that kind of stuff. But she's always kind of been a bit of a seeker. So long story short is that she was not Mormon. Okay. Um, everyone in my town was. Most of my family was. Um, <clears throat> but I wasn't raised Mormon. 
So what she did is that she she introduced us to a church that kind of like it was the Unitarian Universalist Church, which is kind of like, yeah, just believe whatever you yeah, whatever. want, you know, yeah. spirituality. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember I'd be in these like the, you know the kids' classes or whatever, where like you would spend a year studying different religions, which is actually kind of useful, you know, like. This year, when you're eight years old, you're studying Buddhism. When you're nine years old, you're studying, you know, whatever. Um, so I think for me, like it kind of turned me into a little bit of a seeker. But, it, it, you know, I, I would say I was spiritual and that I was interested in that and that right. I had a concept that there was probably something bigger than myself out there, but I hadn't really thought of it, mm-hmm. you know. And then um, <clears throat> probably once I got into my like 20s, I would say I just was kind of like, yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. you know, and, and even at certain points was just like, I don't know. I think it, I, I think it's all just, you know, sort of made up so people can feel like they have purpose to their lives. Um, but then when I got sober, it was like, it was just kind of a shifting. Cause yeah. like, I still can't explain what, like I tried to quit drinking a hundred times, come up with all kinds of crazy things. And it's like, why is it one morning? It was just like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's this path, dude. <laughs> just like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it was just one of those moments. It was, uh, you know, William James talks about the vital religious experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was it. Or vital spiritual experience, whatever his uh, language he uses is. That was it. And, um, you know, from then on, it was like, maybe I should look into this. And, you know, for me, it's kind of been an evolving thing. Um, I, my own definition of, you know, God or whatever it is, is that I don't necessarily know exactly what I think it is. I just know there's something out there that is bigger than myself. And if I just turn myself over to that thing every single day, my life gets better. So I'm going to go with that route. Right. So I really appreciate you getting into that detail and I'll give you a couple of things to kind of think about and resources, and then we'll kind of get back in. So I already suggested a book off air, uh, you know, professor in the cage, but there's another one by Tim Keller, uh, named Re- and it's called reason for God. Mm-hmm. So this is a guy who was a New York City pastor. And so after he would give his sermons on Sundays, he would constantly interact with these people that, as you mentioned earlier, very, very cynical about anything religious, about any like structural anything. And, oh, what about the church? And what about the things? What about the crusades? And he would constantly engage with these people and engage with their arguments about how it's not reasonable to believe that God could possibly exist. And so this book is, it's not, you know, really like a, you know, a Bible study as much as it is a philosophical uh, argument as to why it is reasonable to believe in a creator God. And specifically, obviously he's a Christian pastor. Mm-hmm. So he's going to kind of lead you to the person of Christ, which in our world, like that, that's the only way to salvation to get even closer to that deity uh, that you're describing earlier is through the person of Jesus. So that would be something that I could kind of dig into. Cause even if you think cool. the Bible is like, if you think this is just a complete nonsense book, everything's just completely made up. It's all fables. This book really doesn't lean on that. It leans on, and some people have issues with that in the Christian circles, but it leans on reason. So that would be something that would potentially be interesting for your journey. But getting back, yeah, getting back into uh, the story, and you know, we're gonna we're gonna get into the hunt here in just a second because all my hunters are like, Kyle, what was he shooting? Like, did they get anything? (laughs) I want to talk about the calorie deficit. Oh, because yeah. one thing that you described, Michael, in preparation for this is you lost some weight because you got in really, really good shape. And so you kind of trimmed down a little bit and that kind of worked to your disadvantage when you got out there, because as you describe in the book, you were at roughly a 4,000 calorie deficit 
each day. And, uh, you know, in the book, you also get into a lot of stuff about diets and nutrition science. You know, you talk about the work of Trevor Cashy. Uh, you, you, you can go anywhere with this prompt. I just want you to talk to us a little bit about the nutrition component for you on the trip and kind of the, the starving component, but also some things that you learned about nutrition in the work that you put into this book. Yeah. So, I mean, to get into the nutrition part of the trip, we, I mean, we could only pack in maybe 2000 calories a day because food is heavy, right? We're not going to be, we're not going to be carrying around like all the food we needed, which we're probably burning between 4,000 and 6,000 a day, given how much hiking and carrying and all that stuff we did. Um, so I basically found myself hungry again, right? In this crazy deficit, because we're being able to eat like 2000 calories, which puts us at a, at a burn rate of either 2000 to 4,000 a day. And I started dumping weight pretty quick. And as you kind of alluded to, I went into the trip pretty lean just cause I'd been training hard to prepare for it. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, I dumped weight pretty fast. And what was interesting though, was just finding myself in this state of extended extreme hunger, right? <laughs> it's like, how, how often does that happen? anymore in, in the U S not often. No. Right. And, uh, it just got me thinking about, uh, hunger and how we think about food. And if you look at the, the research, um, about 80% of eating is driven by reasons other than physiological hunger. Okay. So 80% of the time we eat, it's because it's a certain, the clock says we should, right. Mm -hmm. It's a certain time. It's breakfast time. It's lunchtime. It's dinner time. Um, could be driven by stress. Could be driven by, we just don't have anything to do. Could be driven by, oh, like our family's coming over and yeah, they always bring food. So we just eat it, you know? Um, <clears throat> and so to bring this to sort of how people currently view nutrition and, and weight loss, it's like how many diets out there, are like, like the average fad diet setup is like vilify one type of food and then just like push you into another one, right? Mm -hmm. It's like low fat. Uh, carbs are the enemy. So you should, or fat, you know, whatever fat is the enemy, eat right. less fat, low carb carbs are the enemy, eat fewer carbs, Mediterranean diet foods that are not from the Mediterranean diet. Those are the enemy. Those are what are making you fat. So eat foods that are from the Mediterranean keto diet, carbs, terrible, just eat all fat, what, on and on and on. You get the point. When you look at the research, it's like people can lose weight on any diet ever. Right. <laughs> the point is that you have to follow the diet. Mm -hmm. Now the question becomes, because the country is only getting heavier and heavier, yet we do more diets every year. And like an insane amount of people jump on a diet, like 90% of them fail. So then the question is, well, why the hell aren't you following the diet? Sure. <laughs> and I argue that the point is uh, the reason that we stop following diets is because we get hungry and that makes us uncomfortable and we can't deal with the discomfort of hunger. So if you look at how the human body, uh, the human body reacts in the calorie deficit, what happens is that like, as we start to dump weight, it takes a minute for our body to catch up. Mm -hmm. And once we realize like, oh, I'm dumping weight, uh, our body jacks up its hunger signals and it also pushes down, um, our ability to control our eating. So what ends up happening is we feel more hungry. And also when we start eating, we're going to feel less full on the same amount of calories. So really that's, that's what it is. It's a psychological thing. It's being able to deal with the discomfort of hunger. So I met, um, this dude who's an old time friend who I've just known for a while. And he's, 
he's basically, I describe him as a super genius. Uh, he yeah. graduated college at like 16. He got his PhD at 22, which is something you're supposed to get at like 30. Right. Uh, in biochemistry. I mean, it wasn't in like, you know, dance. Right. <laughs> in like the hardest serious. thing. Yeah. He's did, like, he was doing uh, research at this crazy genetic lab when he was like 16. And, um, but he sort of took his talents to nutrition and performance. And, um, I just have a lot of different lessons from him in the book and my time with him. And a lot of it is that like getting back to the idea of like, you can really eat anything and lose weight. You just, you just can't eat too much of it, you know? So we need to, we need to talk about how do we get you to adhere with whatever method of eating you want to use to lose weight or increase your performance or do whatever. Cause when you look at the research, it's like, First of all, people have no idea how much they eat. Right, right, no clue. And the heavier you are, the more likely you are to have no idea. So, you know, the average person, if someone is of a quote unquote normal weight, healthy weight, uh, they usually misjudge the amount of calories they eat every day by about 500. If someone is obese, it can be anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000, right? So part of it is building awareness and all these other things. And he's just a fascinating, fascinating dude. His name's Trevor Cashy. And yeah, he's helped people collectively lose like more than 200,000 pounds and it's just wild. Yeah. He's such an awesome dude. I'd love to have him on the show someday to kind of like really dig into that because that's one thing that I get asked about a lot, you know, cause people kind of see you and they see the workouts that you do and they see things and they're like, I want to be able to do that. And they just assume that they can get on a really short program. That's another thing that people don't understand with a lot of these fad diets is you starve yourself in a lot of ways for, you know, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And then your body, whenever you start eating the Cheetos again and start eating the ice cream again, your body's like, oh, this was a famine period. I need to store up as much of this stuff as possible now that we're taking in these calories so that if this ever happens again, we have more reserves. And so people end up getting fatter after their diet. And that's the thing with most people is like, Keto is not a sustainable diet for the rest of your life for almost everybody on the planet. Like I know of one person that went on Joe Rogan experience that had been doing it without cheats for like three years. But then yeah. like if that person ate a cupcake, they'd all of a sudden fall out of ketosis. You know what I mean? It's like right. one of those weird deals that it, you just have to find something that you can really depend on. But I love how you talked about the, the component where you're out there, you're in the backcountry, you're tired, you're cold, you're hungry, but now you're hunting, okay? That's the whole reason that you're out there. But it seemed like, you know, at some point in the trip, you made a decision that you would potentially take down an older caribou, you know, kill an animal if you had the opportunity to, that you would take off your journalist hat, your observation hat and put on your hunter hat. But it seemed like you were not very comfortable with that idea. And it wasn't like you were being pressured into it. You were essentially along for the ride on a hunt, but you made a decision that you were going to really go that direction. But that didn't seem like a very seamless decision for you, was it? Yeah, no. I mean, so when Donnie asked me to come along, he was like, yeah, you should hunt. And my first answer was, uh, no, I don't think so. And, you know, I, I was like, I'm a journalist. I just, I'm here to observe and watch and you know, you do the hunting. And he, you know, he looked at me and he's like, I think you'd really understand why we came out here, come out here and do what we do if you were to hunt. And so I trusted him, but still had reservations about hunting, about the killing part, right? I was kind of uncomfortable uh, and apprehensive to cross what I sort of knew was going to be a pretty heavy emotional barrier. But uh, like two, yeah, about two weeks in, we'd been, um, looking for an older caribou for a long time. And we'd been skunked a couple of times. And finally we just got in a position where, um, I had a chance at one and these, and we had like, <clears throat> there was these 
herd of caribou eating on a hill and we figured they're going to kind of eat down the hill and then they're, they're going to come up this like knoll. If we can be on the other side of that knoll, mm-hmm. we're going to be in pretty good position. And so we sort of trucked it over there and they didn't see us and, you know, we're down on the ground and it's like, even at that moment, right. I had bought a pretty expensive hunting tag in Alaska. Right. If you're not, if you don't live in the state, I mean, it's not cheap. Uh, <clears throat> I'm carrying a gun around for two weeks, a rifle. And still at that time, like, yeah, well, I don't have to do this, you know? Yeah. Uh, but this herd, they come over the hill and, you know, we have them sort of in the scope. We're just kind of checking them out. And there's one that is clearly a lot older than the rest. And he's limping on his back leg. And like, to me, that was just like, all right, I felt okay with that, you know, because shooting an older animal is going to generally help the health of the herd mm-hmm. while shooting a younger one is not, not to mention, uh, this guy is limping. So how much longer does he have? And would you rather die by a 30 six bullet or being savaged by a pack of wolves mm-hmm. or drowning or freezing to death or starving to death? Right. Right. <laughs> so, um, Anyways, yeah, I got him in my sights and it took a while because they go in and out of the herd, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh man, where'd he go? And sort of as they were, they had come in and I mean, we had him at like 150 yards and like they'd kind of gone past that point. And finally the herd kind of opened up and it was just there, like perfect position and pulled the trigger, pulled the trigger again. And he went down and it was like, after that, I mean, my initial reaction was, Oh my God, what have you done? Like, this is the worst thing you've ever done in your life. How could you do this? There's no coming back from this. And we, we sort of waited a minute and then we like walked up on him and still the same. I'm like, dude, why'd you do this? This is ridiculous, you know? Um, but then we started breaking him down for me, right? Um, field dressing him. And as we started to do that, it's like you, Donnie remembers me saying, oh, it's just like meat, you know? Yeah. And my mind totally shifted because you have this moment where it's like, dude, you eat meat like every single freaking day mm-hmm. and never once have you thought about it or had an emotional reaction to it. But here you are like a complete mess over this meat, right? And so it's like, it's hypocritical. And what it did is it gave me a huge appreciation, not only for that meat, but also like all the meat I eat and this like amazing food system we have. Right. And it's also like by inserting yourself into the life cycle, I found it gives you greater appreciation for that. And it also raises the fact that like one for one creature to live on, another has to die and we are not removed from that equation. Yeah. And I think that you brought up an important uh, quote from Jimmy Carter in your book, or I'll just basically summarizing it where it's like, you know, if if you're going to participate in this food system, like, you know, most people do it it, very insulated. They're, they're not seeing the meat. They're not seeing the blood. It just comes to them fully cooked and, and they're all good with it. But I remember I didn't grow up hunting either. And the first time I, I killed a deer when I was in my mid 20, mid twenties, I remember the reverence I felt for that animal and how thankful I was. And I remember being like a little bit upset, like a little teary eyed, not because I was sad at what I had done. Like, Oh my gosh, what, what have I done to this animal? But it was that same feeling like this animal is going to feed me and my family. 
like uh, th- this, this is an animal that, you know, would have had one of those other outcomes being eaten alive or starving to death or any of those other horrible outcomes. And the quickest way for that animal to, d- to die was a well-placed bullet by, by me. Right. And that's such an awe-inspiring moment. But I do also remember in the book where even after killing the caribou, you know, you're breaking it down and you're seeing that, Hey, it's just meat. I'm pretty sure you hadn't even eaten any of it yet. I don't think y'all had gotten it back to camp. You really haven't humped it out at that point. But Donnie asked you if you would hunt again. And your response to him was, I don't know. And so like, I, I don't really remember from the book if you really kind of gave me the, the rest of your philosophy on that. So where are you at currently with your relationship with hunting? I've hunted again since okay. then. Um, yeah, I did an elk hunt in Utah this year and it went well. And yeah, that's that's where I'm at with it. It's like, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't need to hunt all the time. I'm going to hunt so I have a freezer full of food that I can eat. And that's mainly, that's why I'm hunting is, yeah. is for meat, you know? Um, <clears throat> it's tricky because I think sometimes when we talk about hunting, there can be, um, among hunters, I've noticed almost sort of an arrogance, like, oh, I get all my food from hunted meat. It's like, you need to do the same. The reality is, is that hunting, there's a really big barrier to cross, to get into hunting. You need a lot of time. You need to learn all these different skills. You need to have certain financial assets. It is not a cheap sport, mm-hmm. right? But I do think that if you have the ability and you do have interest, I, I think there's, I think it's really useful. Um, <clears throat> but I also think that like, we shouldn't judge people if they're eating meat and not hunters. Um, I do think that we should judge them if they eat meat and are anti-hunters though. Right, exactly. <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, that's where I'm at with it. I got a freezer full of, uh, elk right now. I had an elk roast last night for dinner and I'm going to continue try every year. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to do, you know, I have a bow. Donnie hooked me up with a bow. Um, also have a rifle. I don't know if I'm going to get into to archery or not. I don't know if I'm as committed time-wise as I need to be to feel comfortable archery hunting. Like the hunt I went on in Utah, I mean, there were guys there that they shoot an hour a day yeah. and we lost like three bulls, you know, to archery. And I was using a rifle. There was a couple other people like the rifle hunters. We don't lose any bulls. You know, that doesn't mean I'm going to be taking 900 yard shots. Cause I think that that's, that crosses an ethical line for me, not sure. judging anyone who does. Like I'm going to take shots within pretty as short of a distance as I can, but I don't know if I'm going to get into bow hunting. I, I don't know. It just depends on the the level of, of time and commitment I have. So like this year, for example, I'm working on another book. It's like, I just don't have time to, to shoot as much as I need to, but maybe in the future I will. Yeah. That's something that I've thought about as well. Since I didn't grow up hunting, it's almost like, you know, you grow up learning how to shoot a rifle and eventually that just gets too easy. So you kind of want to make it more difficult. I'm just not there yet. You know, I, I enjoy rifle hunting. And again, for me, I've wounded an animal before and we didn't find it. And I think about that animal often. And I wounded him yeah. with a rifle. I rushed a shot. You know, I, I tried to, you know, I was getting, getting a little fancy and I wounded this animal. We never found it. And I have no idea what happened to it. And, and I, I couldn't imagine doing that, you know, uh, with a well, you know, non well-placed arrow. And it's kind of the same thing. We're about to have our second kid. And it's kind of like, what, what are we going to do? Like, I can't spend 45 minutes, an hour a day out in the back, back porch, and like shooting a fake deer and all those types of things. It's not really something I could really do. But 
it's an important thing for people to understand. It's an important thing for them to learn how to do. I wanted to learn how to do it myself so that I could pass it down to my sons. Yeah. I thought that that was a very, very important thing because I didn't want them to go without in that type of an aspect. But, you know, we go through the rest of the book. Obviously, you hump out the caribou. You know, you make it out alive. You didn't get attacked by grizzlies and all that. So, you know, all that's in the book and you can get into those details uh, when you guys read it. But I'm curious about how you are different after your trip. Okay, so we're going to get back into the Misogi and all that kind of stuff here in a second. But when you came back in your book, you talk about how you were different. You talk about how your wife perceived you to be different. So give our audience an idea of what changed. Yeah, I would go back to that idea that we talked about with those, um, the David Lavari, the psychologist, and that idea of prevalence-induced concept change or problem creep. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so for example, and I've, I've talked about this before, but it's like when I go up to the Arctic, I have to take five different flights, right? My first flight is from Las Vegas to Seattle. Next one's from Seattle to uh, Anchorage. And they're on these big 757s or whatever. Mm. And now I hate flying. I hate everything about it. Yeah. Like it just pisses me off. It's like the seats are cramped and uncomfortable. The plane is too hot. The entertainment in the plane on the screen in front of you sucks. Bathrooms are cramped. Uh, coffee sucks. The snacks suck. The people next to you, they all suck. Yeah, right. right. Everything about flying is awful. Uh, And then I go spend a month in the Arctic, right? Where it's like, if I want water or anything to drink, I got to go down to a stream and I got to get it. Grizzlies hang out by streams. If I want to go to the bathroom, I got to walk out onto the tundra and squat. And I got to bring the rifle again because of grizzlies. If I'm hungry, well, tough shit. We only brought in so much food. Right. right? If I want to get warm, tough shit. You're in the Arctic. If I want X, Y, Z, tough shit. So when I get back on that plane that goes from Anchorage to Seattle, then Seattle to Las Vegas, it's like, what do you think my headspace in that plane was like, right? Right. Oh, this is so great. Look at all this luxury. This is amazing. Yeah. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, right? It's like that seat. I hadn't sat in a padded chair in more than a month. That seat was the most comfortable thing of my life. Mm -hmm. The movies that it played... Like, oh my God, these are amazing. You know, I'm watching like Fast and the Furious, like 79 or whatever number we're on now. And I'm just like, oh my God, how does this not have 10, 20 Oscars? When I need to go to the bathroom, it's like, I don't have to take the rifle. (laughs) I can sit, Mm -hmm. right? And then when I get up, it's like, hit this little button and the hot running water, which is something I hadn't experienced for more than a month, comes out of this plane at 30,000 feet. And like when that water hits my hands, it's just like, oh my God, this is the greatest (laughs) thing ever. So that's a long way of saying, basically, I came back into quote unquote normal life and was just like, at least for a week in complete shock and awe about just how amazing modern life is. I would never have had that had I not put myself through that discomfort of the Arctic, never have that realization. And it has hung on, I think since then to, to varying degrees, but it's like, you just you're just so grateful for how amazing we have it now. And you're like, Oh my God, like even when I have, I'm not saying that people don't have problems and I don't still have problems, but it gives me perspective, right? Even with something like we've been going through now with like COVID, it's like, we're forced inside. We got to do X, Y, Z. There's blah, 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 blah. It's like, imagine if it was 1918, that pandemic, it's like, yes, there is a pandemic and yes, it's killing millions of people, but please return to your factory job and stand next to the person, you know, two feet away from you who is currently dying and have fun. You're going to be next. Right. right. It's like, even in the face of problems, our problems are going to be better. 
So it's just one of those where the change has been like, I'm less flustered by stuff. Mm. I'm just like, and because of this um, and being more grateful, I'm just like, I think better in a lot of ways. It's like, I'm a better husband. I'm a better professor. When I deal with students, I'm less like, you know, just like, why are you asking me this dumbass question? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing that it made me think of as I was reading through your book, Michael, is when you, you know, when missionaries go to Africa, you know, and come back or to other places in South America where there's a lot of poverty, they always come back and say generally a lot of the same things. Oh, it was great. It was amazing. A great experience. The people are so happy there. And they're always a little bit shocked by that because they don't have iPhones. They don't have Mercedes Benzes. They don't, they don't have the, you know, major league baseball that they can just turn on and watch. They're, they're living in what we would consider to be here, abject poverty. And yet they're happy. And that's what I think most people, it's like when you tear everything else, all these luxuries away, when you find a luxury, that's why when you hand a kid a Snickers bar over there, it's one of the most incredible moments of their life. And that's, that doesn't mean you're better than them. It just means that they have a different mindset when it comes to things that they should be happy about, things that they should feel like is a blessing. Um, And we've teed this up a few times, Michael, so we got to get to it. And I got to know how this word is said, but uh, you were introduced after you met Donnie to the Japanese concept of, is it misogi or misogai? Misogi. Misogi. All right. So we'll go with Misogi. So I want you to get into what that is, but you were studying Misogi and that led you to Dr. Marcus Elliott. Uh, He's a very interesting character that you guys can uh, get in the book, but this guy has a couple of rules for what a Misogi is, which you'll tell us here in a second, but it's like, it has to be really hard and you can't die. Right. And I I thought that was really great. He had a great quote in there. It was because I can tell you that nothing great in life comes with complete assurance of success. Right. So like when you play your kid in one-on-one basketball and they're two years old, that's not going to be one of the biggest moments of your life whenever you beat them 21, nothing. Right. But go ahead and give us an idea of what Misogai is uh, or Misogi. Sorry, I'm saying it wrong again. What Misogi is and what you learned about it as you were researching the book. Yeah. So I meet this guy named Marcus Elliott and probably two things you need to know about him. Um, The first is that he's kind of a seeker. So he lived out of a VW van for a while. He got himself through college by counting cards. Uh, He would go to Burning Man like way back in the day when it was just this weird little thing in the desert. Um, I guess now it's just like a a big weird thing in the desert. So you get the point. Uh, Number two is that he's brilliant. So he got his uh, MD from Harvard Medical School, but he decides, I'm not going to be a doctor. I want to revolutionize sports science, which is sort of like one of those declarations that is so big that it borders on almost arrogance. We're just like, who the hell is this guy, right? Um, But it turns out he actually does it. So he owns these facilities called P3, and he is the first guy to um, sort of integrate quantification and AI and big data into human movement. And this can help him find sort of hidden assets in athletes' games. It can also help him identify injury risk and put numbers on injury risk. So he totally changes the game. And he's got contracts with the NBA. Every single NBA player who goes into the draft has to go through his system. Uh, He's got contracts with the NFL, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he's all about numbers and data and figure and what that can can do to improve performance. Um, But he also understands that what really improves performance, it can't always be measured, right? There are immeasurables. So it's like, why is there certain athletes where like, you just know you need to give them the ball at the end of the game, right? There's a gear that certain people has and it's psychological. And it's like, well, how do you get to that? So to get to that, uh, he does this thing called Masogi. And it's basically you go out in nature and you do something really, really hard once a year. 
So the rules, as you kind of alluded to, are make it really hard, which he defines by saying you should have a 50-50 shot of finishing whatever the task is. Mm -hmm. Number two, uh, don't die. And that's just like a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, don't be an idiot, be safe. So they've done things like uh, taking an 85-pound boulder and walked it underneath the Santa Barbara Channel for five miles. So like one guy will go down, pick up the boulder, walk 10 yards, drop it, come up. The next guy will go down, on and on. Uh, they've done things like, oh, I see a mountain peak, you know, whatever distance away. Let's see if we can get there in a day. All kinds of just weird, quirky stuff. Now, the idea is that what he's trying to get at is that if you think about in our past, humans used to have to do challenging, really hard physical tasks in nature all the time. Mm -hmm. It's part of living, right? This could be from like some epic hunt we had to go on when we needed, needed food. Could be from migrating to like our summering to wintering grounds. Could be from a tiger lurking in the bushes. And every time we would do this kind of stuff, we would learn something about ourselves. We would learn what our potential was and what we were capable of, right? But think about modern life. We don't have those sort of challenges anymore, no. right? No. You can survive and never really be challenged. And you could have a halfway decent life. You have a decent job. You got a family to come home to, on and on and on. Um, <clears throat> but the problem is, is you never have these moments that really show you what you're capable of, that push you out of your comfort zone. And it's only by getting pushed out of your comfort zone and for lack of a better term, having to figure your shit out that you grow your potential, see what mm -hmm. you're capable of. So on something like a Masogi, a couple things are going to happen. You're going to hit this moment because it's a 50-50 shot. Very little of what we do nowadays do we truly have a risk of failure? We consistently pick and choose to do things that are well within our capabilities. Think right. about how people approach marathons. Mm -hmm. It's not, I don't know if I can finish this. It's, I don't know if I can finish this in insert a time goal, right? So what happens is that you get out there and you will inevitably face a wall where you think you need to quit. You can't go any further. You know, I've reached my edge, but if you can keep putting one foot in front of the other, or whatever it is, you can look back and then see, hey, I thought my edge was back there, but here I am past it. So I've sold myself short here. And the point is that you can then take that and go, where else am I selling myself short in, in life? Right? And then the second part is that it's good at helping people reframe fear because failure in our past used to mean death. Right. So we are wired to avoid failure at any cost and really fear it. But nowadays, failure doesn't necessarily mean death, right? Rarely does it mean death. It's like I messed up a slideshow and a PowerPoint or yeah. I misspoke or I like spelled my boss's name wrong in an email or something like that. Uh, yet we still fear stuff like that. So what it can do is that it like by dancing on the edge of like a true failure, you start to realize that like, yeah, failure is not that big of a deal. And then you can take that attitude back into your normal life. It can help reframe things for you. I think it's an important concept as well, but the, really the concept of the fact that failure should be a part of it, that automatically extends people out beyond what they thought they could do, right? So it's yes. not like, oh, I'm going to run a 5K. It's like, no, we're going to try to run a 5K in under you know 16 minutes. Or it's, it's something like that. You said put a time component on it. But what's funny about the concept in the book is as soon as you brought that up, I was thinking about things that I could try and do. But then because you know I do this media thing and I have this podcast, I was automatically thinking, man, that would be a really cool Instagram post. Or I bet my people that you know like us and follow us on Facebook would really, really like that. 
But that's something that Dr. Elliot talks about as well, that a Misogi shouldn't be advertised, that there should be no social media, no hubbub surrounding it. And this was a quote. This is maybe one of my favorite quotes from the book that wasn't you know, from you, but this is from Dr. Elliot. And here's the quote. A big part of the value proposition is that I'm going to do something that's really uncomfortable. I'm going to want to quit. And it's going to be hard not to quit because no one is watching. But I'm not going to quit because I'm watching. And I, I, I love that quote because a lot of people, when they go on a run early in the morning, no one's around to see that they took a break and walked a half mile as opposed to run it. Like when you're out running wind sprints or doing something like that and you intended to run 10 and you're exhausted at number six, no one's going to know that you took those last three or four reps off except you. You're right. going to know, you're going to know that you avoided jujitsu class because you just didn't feel great that day. Like, you know, whatever the situation is. So why do you think it's important? Cause I'm sure some people would disagree with that. Like, how are you going to get more people to do it? If you're not advertising it and talking about it and blah, blah, blah. And here you are talking about it in your book. Like, are you breaking the rules? But I, I tend to agree with this, but why is that so important to not make it a big deal for other people? Well, I think so much of what we do nowadays is determined by how it makes us look in relation to other people. It's like we do things. It's like we decide, okay, I want to run a ultra marathon in like 10 hours because my neighbor did it in 10 hours and 15 minutes. Right. It's like, yeah. we're always compare making these random comparisons. So by taking other people out of the equation, you can really get down to the heart of your abilities and also find that you can go a lot further because you're not setting these artificial markers. Right. And also it's like, a lot of the stuff we do too is like for the Instagram. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. like, that's just like a shitty way to go through life. Like learning to do things for yourself, for something bigger is so much more powerful right. and can help push you that much further. So one of the, one of the sort of guidelines of Misogi is one, as you said, it's like, you don't, you don't share it. You don't advertise it on social. Like, yeah, you can talk about it or whatever. Like, People will DM me and be like, hey, dude, here's what I just did. Great. Because that's you and I having a conversation. Mm -hmm. But it's not about like, I'm going to blast this out to my followers and be like, yeah, I'm a badass or whatever. Um, the second part is that whatever you do should kind of be weird and quirky. Like, you know, a marathon is great if you want to do that, if you really think you have a 50-50 shot. But like, wouldn't it be more interesting to just like make up some weird thing? Because now you you take off these artificial markers of like what is good and what is bad, right? Once you remove these artificial things we have of good or bad, you can, you find that you can go a lot further. So I'm not interested in doing a marathon as a Masogi because I'm like, I'm comparing myself to others. It's like, oh, I know three hours is a good goal or whatever, mm -hmm. four hours. I'm more interested in going, I wonder if I can get from my house to this town that I think is maybe whatever miles over, but through the desert. And I don't know what I'm going to encounter. I just know it's going to be freaking gnarly, dude. <laughs> right? right. Because now I don't care about, Oh, did I finish it in X time or Y time? I just want to know that I'm able to do that. Yeah. And that's the thing again, focus on that second rule. You can't die. So there's a difference between difficult and too sketchy to even attempt. So it's like, yeah. guys, don't try to swim across the Pacific Ocean. That's a terrible idea. But it is kind of a good good thing to kind of keep in mind that, man, this should be something that I have a really good idea or a really good chance of failing. But obviously- yeah, here's, here's a quick example yeah. for that. Like, so when they did the one that I talked about with the boulder under mm -hmm. the Santa Barbara channel, they brought a safety boat with like a trained whatever guy, right? So there's four of the people and they had one guy there who was just there to ensure that they were safe. 
right? If I'm doing, um, if I'm doing something similar and I'm going to be out in the desert or whatever, like I'm bringing my cell phone, I'm bringing a Garmin emergency GPS, mm-hmm. I'm bringing enough water. Like I'm not gonna be dumb about this, right? It's, that's not the point. Don't die. Don't break that rule. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, you, the third rule, the silent rules, don't be dumb. That's a great way to kind of say that. But Michael, this, this book has had a tremendous impact. Like it's uh, opened up a lot of doors for you for speaking engagements and working on other projects and everything like that. But your book also caught the attention of the biggest podcast host on the planet, Joe Rogan. And so you appeared on the Joe Rogan experience in the middle of last year in May of 2021. That's episode 1649. I put it in the show notes so you guys can check that out. You got to check it out on Spotify because whatever. But, uh, I'm curious for you, like, how did that process of appearing on a show happen? Like, did he just DM you out of the blue? Was it, you know, did he call you on the phone? And then I guess take us through the whole experience of what it was like going down there and being on a show. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it happened just because the, probably because the book resonated um, with some of his interests. And we have some friends in common, like Donnie Vincent. Donnie was on his show a few years ago, you know? Um, And so my publisher handles most of the press though. So they Mm -hmm. sort of, hooked it up, but it just probably had the right things that he was interested in. And then in terms of how it all worked out, um, it was cool. Flew down to Austin, stayed a night in a hotel or whatever. And, um, you know, someone came and got me, took me to a studio. And, you know, once we got there, because we're in the era of COVID, they did a quick 15 minute test or whatever on both everyone in there. And then just go back and, you know, start recording. And it's just, it's literally just like having a conversation and the studio is, is uh, super small, but it's really cool. Um, and he's a great dude, like fun to talk to really interesting. He's got an unbelievable memory of just random facts. Like he can just pull random facts from wherever. And I like him because he's not, he's, he's very smart, but he's not pretentious. So working at a university, yeah, I work with a lot of smart people, but who are pretentious where sure. this dude's just like, yeah, I got a brain on me, but I'm just at the end of the day, I'm just a freaking dude. You know, that's awesome. I've talked to several people that have been on his show and that's kind of the same thing they say. It's like, he is what you would expect him to be like a really nice guy, a very generous guy, honestly curious and inquisitive person as well. Uh, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier. I wasn't aware that you were working on a new book. So uh, are you at a point where you could like describe the new book or tell us about it or give us an idea when it's going to come out? Yeah. So it's kind of an extension of um, this one we're talking about here. And it is about how humans generally uh, evolved in these landscapes of scarcity, where there was never enough of all kinds of different things, food, stuff, information, the number of people we could influence, Mm -hmm. the amount of happiness we could even have in our lives. And we now have um, an abundance of all that kind of stuff. And like for happiness, like we, we get pitched a million different ways to be happy. Right. Um, and so it looks at like, what is that doing to us through a lot of different lenses? And it's involved some kind of similar to Alaska, some crazy travel, um, into remote sort of dangerous places to meet with interesting people. So it's been, it's been good so far. Okay. So do we are, you're in the process of writing it. Do we have an idea of when it's going to hit the shelves? Yeah, I'm in the process now. Hopefully it'll be out May 2023. So it's a long process. But Okay, well, if uh, we don't talk to you before, then we'll certainly have to have you on uh, next spring so that you can chat about that book. But Michael, as we kind of bring things to a close here, there's something that I like to do towards the end of my shows. It's a segment called, What Would You Say to Someone That Said? And so basically I'm going to say that and then I'm going to fill in the blank with a statement, but this is lightning round. You have 30 seconds maximum, regardless of the topic to give me just the nuts and bolts, you know, meat and potatoes answer. Okay. So are you up for it? All right. Oh, I'm in. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's hit the first one. See how you do. 
What would you say to someone that said, I have no idea what to do about my personal nutrition? Get a food scale, weigh the food that you eat to figure out how much you're eating and then go from there. Okay. Next one here. What would you say? Two to weeks. That- do it for like two weeks. You don't have to do it for life. <laughs> two weeks and we'll figure it out. I've done that before and it is actually astonishing how much, Very uh, how much you eat. All right. What would you say to someone that said, I'm fat. That's just the way it is. Get a food scale. <laughs> <laughs> two weeks, two weeks on a food scale. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think that uh, the obesity crisis is largely fueled by people using food other than fuel and simply having an awareness of how you're eating and why is very important. Absolutely. What would you say to someone that said, I don't like sweating? Um, you should like sweating. I <laughs> look, um, Look, I've we know that like, Michael, I've actually had people tell me that is that's the reason why they don't work out is they don't like sweating. Hey, that's a real thing. I've heard someone say, um, I would just tell them that you're by not sweating, that you are setting yourself up for like literally every chronic disease ever. Um, increasing your fitness level is the best thing you can do for long-term health. It's associated with all, uh, with decreasing all the stuff that kills people today. So Learn to like sweating. Yeah, you went into great detail in the book and I really appreciated that. All right, let's keep it going. What would you say to someone that said, backcountry, <laughs> backcountry, backcountry hunters are gluttons for punishment? Maybe it's true. I don't know. Um, no, I think that there, no, there's something a lot deeper to it. You know, I, I spoke to some philosophers and psychologists and, you know, it's very possible that backcountry hunting, because that's literally what we did for millions of years to survive, really taps into something deep inside humans. Absolutely. What would you say to someone that said killing an animal is immoral? Uh, if you eat meat and you think that, uh, I think you're a hypocrite. If you were a vegan and you think that, all right, it's your opinion, man. Hey, but as we've seen a lot before, and as uh, Papa Ted Nugent pointed out, there are a lot of animals that have to die in order for you to get your vegan salad. So there is that for people to consider. All right, just a few more here. What would you say to someone that said, I could never do a misogi, I'm too old? Uh, 50-50 shot is important. I got an email from a lady, I think her name was Deb, and I, I don't know this person. She emailed me and she just said, hi, my name is Deb. I am 79 years old. Uh, I am about to do a Masogi. It will be hard and I won't die. Signed off, Deb. So be like Deb. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, I could never do a Masogi. I'm too soft. Uh, 50, 50 shot. That's right, guys. If you haven't, if you haven't, if you don't think you can run a mile, (laughs) go try and run a mile. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're not going to die. Well, hey, a 50-50 shot for Cam Haynes running 200 miles or something like that is different than you who hasn't ran since high school or something like that. So you can obviously scale this a little bit. But Michael, here we are. Last question of the day. What would you say to someone that said, I like being comfortable? Uh, Well, of course you do. We all like being comfortable. I like being comfortable too. But if you're only being comfortable and only tipping into comfort, you are going to have some problems in your life. Uh, Your body's going to go to shit. It's not going to be good for your mind. It's not going to be good for your outlook. So maybe you should try and dabble in a little bit of discomfort and see what happens. You uh, You might have a better life afterwards. Absolutely. Well, Michael, I really appreciate all the time. I appreciate you giving us a little bit of extra time to get into some extra questions, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I really appreciate you having me on, man. That was really fun. All right, Michael Easter, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. 
There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Michael Easter. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to Michael's website. So that is where you can buy the book. You can find him on social media, all the stuff about his story, his upcoming book. That is a great center point for you guys to be able to go and check that out. And then also I've got a link to the Joe Rogan Experience episode 1649, where he appeared on that episode back last May. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's just I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.